This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Shall we pray? Just ask for God's help. Father, we pray again now uh, as we've been listening and talking for a while this morning. We pray, Lord, by your spirit, you give us a a fresh burst of concentration uh, and an ability to take in what your word uh, has to say to us. Please soften our hearts. Uh, Please give us listening ears. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, last year, Jenny, my wife, my trophy wife and I... uh, We had the joy of attending a Chinese church when we were living in Australia. Now, the entire service was in Mandarin. My facility with Mandarin extends to Nihao and Xie and that's all. It was a very strange experience watching this entire church service and everything getting done in a language that I could not understand. Uh, Even the songs were in Chinese script in in pinyin, so it was gobbledygook to me. I couldn't even mouth the words. I just had to kind of stand there looking like a fool. And to top it all off, the sermon, which was entirely in Mandarin, went for an hour and 15 minutes. All of it was a mystery to me. Mandarin is meaningless to me. Unless there's a translator. Now, we learned in the first talk that God is infinite. Who knows what kind of language the Father, the Son and the Spirit use to communicate with each other. But it must be an infinite Language, And it wouldn't have sounds, physical sounds, because physical sounds are a part of creation. God doesn't have a mouth and a tongue because they also are parts of creation. Whatever God's infinite language is, I have no hope of learning it because I'm not infinite. I'm finite and frail. I don't have the capacity to grasp an infinite language. I wouldn't be able to hear it because my hearing is created and finite. I wouldn't be able to understand it because my brain is created and finite. I wouldn't be able to speak it because my lips and my tongue are created and finite. Now, this is really important to understand why. Because it means that the only way I'm going to know anything about God is if he first takes the initiative, because I can't. And if I'm to know anything about God, God must come and translate his infinite language into a finite language that I can understand. In other words, we're totally dependent on God if we are to know anything about him. We can only get revelation, God revealing himself, we can only get revelation if God has chosen to bring it to us 
and if he's done it in a way that we can understand. Thankfully, God has done this. God has on one hand taken the initiative to make himself known to his creatures, but on the other hand, God has done it in a way that we frail, finite creatures can understand. And so this brings us to our next topic, the topic of the knowledge of God. Let's just have a quick review of our map again and just get it in our brains. Can you remember what the most important topic was? Gospel. Fantastic. And what's the gospel? It's the person and the work of Christ. That's right. Why do we have a gospel? Doctrine of sin. Remember, sin is fundamentally an attitude of rejection of God. It's... Who who sins? Humanity, that's right. And they are a part of creation. And creation is linked to the doctrine of God. Fantastic, that's right. And then down here at the bottom we have knowledge of God. That's what we're going to be looking at now. Okay. And then of course you've got the doctrine of salvation, how redemption accomplished is applied to individuals then how it's applied to the church corporately, and then how it's applied finally in the last things. So let's come down to the bottom here to the knowledge of God. Here we go. I've actually got a red point. Fantastic. I didn't realise that. And let's come and have a think about how God has chosen to reveal himself to us and to do it in a way that we can understand. What we're talking about is revelation. Revelation meaning God revealing himself to us. Now, how has God done this? God has done this. God has revealed himself to us in two ways. The first way that God has revealed himself to us is in what Christians have come over the years to call general revelation. General revelation. That is, God has communicated to us Something about himself in creation. Why don't you turn to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. And we'll see something of how this works. Psalm 19. Now look at what Psalm 19 tells us about general revelation. It starts by saying this. You may know it. It's a very famous psalm. It says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now let's just stop there. Verse 1 is talking about the sky, the heavens. And what do the heavens show? They show forth that God is glorious. There is something magnificent and wonderful about God. Well, when do they do that? Look at verse 2. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. When do the skies proclaim that God is glorious? All the time. During the day and at night when we look at the stars. It says here that they pour forth speech. What what kind of speech do they pour forth? Well, look at verse 3. They have no speech. 
They use no words. No sound is heard from them. That is, they're not actually using physical speech, are they? Okay, it's a kind of a visible speech. Now, this visible speech, who does it go to? Well, look at verse 4. Yet their voice, the voice of the heavens, goes into all the earth. Their words, their visible words, go to the ends of the world. This revelation is going on all the time and it goes to all people. Why is it when I jump on Instagram and Facebook, I just see so many sunsets pasted there? Because they're so magnificent, aren't they? Why do storms and blue skies and cloud formations take our breath away? Why do we find them so enchanting and beautiful? Why at night when we look up to the stars is it so enchanting to us? Because God has left these marks in the sky to show us something of how glorious he is. General revelation, creation, is a way that God communicates to us. But what is it that he communicates to us? Well, turn to Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's pick it up at verse 19 in Romans chapter 1. Paul is talking here about Gentiles. Okay, He's talking about people who don't have the Bible. And look at what he says about them in verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to Gentiles, because God has made it plain. Well, what's he made plain? Well, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, these have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Do you see what creation tells us about God here? It says that we've all seen it, we've all understood it, and it teaches us in particular two things about God. Did you see it? For verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what are these invisible qualities about God? Well, number one, his eternal power, his infinite power is displayed in creation. When you look at the intricacies of creation, when you look at the size of the cosmos, when you look at the storms, when you look at big waves and mountains, you see something of God's infinite power. What's the second thing it tells us about God? His invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and what? His divine nature. God is divine. God is the one who's God and we're not. It's his, remember we saw it's his infinity, it's his eternality that makes him God. His eternal power shows that he is the divine nature, the divine substance. And is to be the one who's worshipped. Think of how much, at the moment, human intelligence is being funnelled into trying to create artificial intelligence. 
We are putting the best human minds in the world into trying to make artificial intelligence. But we are nowhere near the power of the human brain. Every time I try and use Siri, it just reminds me of that. You can barely understand me in my accent. Our attempt at artificial intelligence is nowhere near human thinking. It's nowhere near human perception. It's nowhere near human consciousness. It's nowhere near the human conscience. And yet atheists seem to think that no intelligence produced human intelligence. That's irrational, isn't it? God has given us general revelation, the beauty, the magnificence, the intricacy of the world around us to show us how glorious he is, that he's got eternal power, that he is divine. And if it's there, then please don't ignore it. God has put it there for a purpose. God has put the splendour of the flowers and the sky and the seas and the sunset for us to enjoy. Why? So that we may find pleasure in praising God for his wise and his powerful works. It's on a camp like this that's a great time just to go out and look at the glory of God. Now, If we learn all these things about God in creation, in general revelation, why don't people believe in God? Or why do people believe in the wrong God? Ah, well the answer's given there in Romans 1, if you've still got it open. Let's just backtrack to verse 18. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 there. He says this, the wrath of God, God's anger is also being revealed from heaven, from where God exists, against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do you see why people don't believe in God? It's because they've got sinful hearts. And when that true and good and right revelation comes to us, what do we do? We suppress it. We screw it up. We change it. We mangle it. When the truth comes to us and we comprehend it so that we've got it and know it, we then abuse it. And we keep abusing it and we keep abusing it and we keep abusing it to the point where some people don't even believe there is a God. Why is there general revelation? What is the purpose of general revelation? Well, look again at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, here's the purpose. So that people are without excuse. General revelation holds all people accountable. There is no one out there who doesn't know enough about God. No one on judgment day can front up and say, God, you didn't tell me enough about you. 
Everybody knows about God. Everybody has rejected that knowledge of God. And the function of general revelation is to condemn us. Now, the thing about general revelation is that there is not enough revelation in general revelation to save us. Only enough to condemn us. Now, can I say this is a really, really important point. Because if we think that there is enough revelation in general revelation to save us, what will that do? We won't see any need to take the gospel to all nations. See, the people who are lost there in Pango Pango land, we won't think that they need the gospel because they've got enough information without the gospel. And we won't see the need to have to take the gospel to all nations, to every nation, tribe and tongue. We'll think they don't need missionaries, but scripture is clear, general revelation cannot save us. What can general revelation do? Paul tells us in Acts 17 that God has put general revelation there so that humans may seek God and perhaps reach out and find him. God has put general revelation out there, not only to condemn us, but also for those who have ears to hear, to take it and start seeking God. And if anyone seeks God, well, of course God will reveal himself to them. God is powerful enough to bring the gospel to people in whatever circumstances. God will send a missionary. God will bring a Bible to the person. God may even give a dream if there's no access to the Bible. But God can do it. A good friend of mine in his early 50s was living in Perth. Uh, A complete pagan. uh, Lived his life for himself. And he was in the bush one day down south in Perth. It was very beautiful. And he said he was walking on a track. He sat on a rock. He looked out at the ocean and the power of the waves and the sky and the beauty. And he looked at it and he said... There must be an intelligence behind all of this. Surely there's a God. And he said to himself, I better do something about this. Why would it be so stupid to ignore someone who has made all this? And so he started to seek God and he prayed to God and he thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go through the religions. I kind of got raised a bit with the church, but I better just tick that off the list first and then I can go to the more trendy religions in Australia like Buddhism and that kind of thing. And so he thought, look, I'll just go to the local church and then tick that off and then I can, then I can go and focus on all the, all the good stuff. So the church he happened to go to was my church. And he walked in that first Sunday and he sat down and saw these people doing things and then, then the man got up to preach and he got the shock of his life. He said to me, he said, you know what I discovered? When that man began to preach, I saw that the Bible knew me better than I knew myself. And he was so thrown by that that he just left. He came back the next week and he said the same thing happened. He came back the week after and he said the same thing happened. The Bible knew me better than I knew us. Within a couple of weeks he'd been converted. There is God using general revelation to get someone to seek him. And if you seek, God of course can bring the gospel. I can tell you that many stories uh, that are similar. 
to people seeking God and God coming to them. And so this paves the way to the next kind of revelation that we discover in the Bible. And Christians over the years have called this special revelation. General revelation because it goes to everyone generally. Special revelation because it goes to certain people, not everyone. And the basic difference between general and special revelation is that special revelation is the message of salvation. General revelation reaches all people and it brings guilt. Special revelation reaches some, not everyone, and it brings salvation. How has the message of special revelation, of salvation, come to people? Well, it started straight after the fall to Adam when God said there is going to be a seed that will come from the woman who will destroy the work of the devil. That was the first preaching of special revelation of the gospel. It came to Adam, it came to Abraham, it came through Israel, and then the climax of special revelation. God revealing the high point of salvation that came in the person of Jesus. This is exactly what the first verses of the book of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many and varied ways through the prophets. But in these last days, God has climatically spoken to us in his son, Jesus. God's supreme revelation was in Jesus himself, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And God committed this message to writing, particularly in the New Testament documents, and especially in the four Gospels. And so special revelation now exists for us in the Bible. Now, uh, that raises a question, doesn't it? The Bible. How are human words God's special revelation to us? And so this raises the topic of inspiration. Inspiration. Now what does inspiration mean? You might think that inspiration is what happens when you see Andrew Ong, very inspiring man, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about inspiration. What inspiration means is that the words of Scripture, on the one hand, are written by human beings. Think about it. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, what happened? Did he wake up one morning and roll out the scroll and pick up the pen, put his hand there, and then God started moving the pen? No, no, he didn't do that. Did he pick up the pen and then hear a voice? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God. To the saints in Rome, to the saints in Rome. He didn't do that either. Paul would have planned the book of Romans. He would have written it, not himself. He would have, because in those days you wrote it through a scribe. He would have dictated it to someone who wrote it down. Paul would have chosen the words, the expression, the logic of the letter. So much so that when you read Romans and you read Paul's writings, you see Paul's own personality revealed in those writings. 
So those writings are 100% the words of the Apostle Paul. In other words, Scripture is a human book. However, on the other hand, God was so at work in the authors of Scripture that what God wanted written down was written down. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 that the authors of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is, God was so at work by his Spirit through these authors of Scripture that what God wanted written down was written down. And he did it in such a way that the words of the Bible are also God's words. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, not part of Scripture, but all Scripture is God-breathed. They're the words that God wanted written down. And God was able to work through the human authors, not bypass who they were. God was able to work through them so that they 100% wrote it down and it came out with the words that they chose in their personality, but it was still God's word. So the inspiration of Scripture means that the Bible is written by humans, and the Bible is written by God. It's 100% the work of humans, and it's 100% as well, and I don't know how you do that, the Word of God. Let me show you what it means. I'll give you the inspiration scale. At one end of the inspiration scale, you've got human words. At the other end of the inspiration scale, you've got God's words. Now, On the one hand, those who want to emphasise that the Bible is just a human book, we call theological liberalism. Okay, These are the kind of people that come along and say, the uh, the Bible makes me feel inspired, uh, but at the end of the day it's only a human book. And you know what Paul wrote about human sexuality there in Romans 1? I mean, he was just a product of his time. It's not right, but it's a very inspiring book anyway. But he made big mistakes because it's a human book and humans are fallible and all that kind of stuff. That's at one end. At the other end, you've got the fundamentalists. Uh, These are the guys that come along and say, almost to the point of dictation, what God wrote wrote down, he wrote down. And the Bible's words almost become a magic book and it bypasses the human authorship of Scripture. And so what they do is that they read, you know, Psalm 43 verse 4 and they multiply it by 5 and divide it by pi and then get the word David in Hebrew and, you know, uh, put that through some kind of a formula and come out with a code and there it is. Magic. No, 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 that's not how the Bible works. It ceases to be a human writing at that point. The error is one or the other. There's also the error of just being in the middle You know, the Bible's 50% the word of humans and it's 50% the word of God. It raises a massive problem because which? how do you know which parts are God's words and which parts aren't God's words? Who are you to judge that? 
Not only that, it contradicts what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture is God-breathed. Not 50%. Not even 75%. 100% is God-breathed. So, evangelicals like ourselves, evangelical, meaning the go- evan- evangelists the gospel, evangelicals, those of us who want to put the gospel at the centre, evangelicals have always insisted it's not one or the other, it's actually both. It's 100% of both. It's the whole thing. It is 100% a human book. It is 100% God's word as well. And if it is a human word, it will reflect the culture's slang and sayings of that time. When Jesus said that the mustard seed was the smallest seed, that is not a scientific statement. That was a saying and an observation from a particular time in a particular way. And when the Psalms speak of the trees clapping their hands, it is a metaphor appropriate for the time. It's not to be taken literally like it's some magic formula. You see, if the Bible is a human word, then we've got to treat it like it's a human word and not treat it like it's magic. If we're going to use the Bible properly, then we must split it up into the books in the way that it's been read and start at the beginning of the book and read it through and read each verse in context and each paragraph in the context of the book. It'd be ridiculous to think that because the Bible is inspired, I suddenly pick it up, randomly open up, put my finger down on a page and just start reading. I don't do that with a newspaper article. I don't do that with a novel I'm reading. That's not how human writing works. Any sentence must be understood in the context of the paragraph and then the whole book and the time that it was written. If you take words out of context, you can prove anything you want. Journalists do it all the time. (laughs) But not only is the Bible a human book, it is also 100% God's words. And if it's 100% God's words, then it must be true. Think about it. God doesn't make mistakes. We're fallible. We get things wrong. But God doesn't. So I have a problem with the Bible. The problem lies with me, not with the Bible. Because it's God's Word. If I don't like what Scripture teaches, the problem is with me, not the Bible. And what do I need to do? I need to bend my will to be in line with Scripture. Not bend Scripture to be in line with my will. You see, the inspiration of Scripture means that Scripture is written in a human cultural context, but what it teaches applies to all cultures for all human time. Now, it's this view of inspiration that teaches us all about how God guides us now. There's so much confusion about how God guides us. But scripture teaches us that the normal way that God guides us is when from scripture we ourselves learn to discern what is best. Turn, for example, to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. 
Verse 9, have a look at Paul's prayer here in verse 9. This is how he prays for the Philippians and we'll learn something about guidance from it. Look at how he prays for the Philippians. He says this in verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love, love of course is central, isn't it, that your love may abound, may grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? Now, it's the next words that are important. So that you may be able to discern what is best. Discern what is best. God guides us as we humans learn to discern in life what is best. Nowhere does scripture say that the normal way God guides me is by directly telling me what to do all the time through hunches or whatever it may be. If God just kept telling me what to do all the time, what use would there be for the Bible? Can God directly tell me what to do? Well, of course he can. But that's abnormal and we shouldn't expect it because the Bible doesn't promise it. Has God done it in the past? Yes. Will he do it in the future? I'm sure he will. But it is abnormal. We shouldn't expect it. We shouldn't ask for it. We should do what the Bible tells us we should do. That is, learn to discern what is best. Now, why does God guide us this way? Why doesn't God just give us words all the time and we can just follow this direct leading? God teaches us to discern what is best. Why? Because he wants us to mature. What would you think if, I'm now 53 years old, if I couldn't make a decision without my mother telling me what to do? You'd look at that and you'd pull me aside and you'd go, Marty, for good, Marty, you need to grow up. Right? You're 53, you need to mature. And the same goes for us. If God was just telling us all the time what to do when we're faced with a decision, we wouldn't mature. We wouldn't grow in what the Bible calls wisdom. God wants us to become wise, to be able to be discerning between good and evil. And so that is the normal way that God guides. You know, there have been so many times in my own life where I wished God had just given me a direct word so I'd know what to do in the situation, and God didn't. Why? Because he loves me so much that he wants me to learn wisdom. And so now we move on from the topic of Revelation to the climax of Revelation. That is, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The high point of God revealing his heart to human beings. And we come now to one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. That is, how can God become a human? How can the infinite become finite. We've learned that God is infinite. And the big question is this, 
How could God enter into his finite, limited creation without ceasing to be God? Think about it. Okay. We learned, didn't we, in the first talk that God has no needs. For example, God can't get hungry. Well, if Jesus was God, why did he get hungry? We learned that God doesn't get tired in the first talk, didn't we? Well, hang on, if Jesus was God, why did he get tired? James 1.13 tells us that God can't be tempted because he can't be tempted by evil. Well, hang on, if Jesus is God, why was, why was Jesus tempted? How could Jesus be divine? We learned in the first talk that God knows everything. Well, if Jesus was God, how is it that he doesn't know when he's going to return? Thank you for asking those questions. They're very, very helpful. And they're going to help us to come into this topic of God becoming human. How can God become human? Well, we're going to trace this historically again as well. One of the first solutions to this problem of how Jesus could get tired and hungry and be ignorant of certain things uh, was proposed and it was called docetism. Docetism. I'll tell you why it's called that in a tick. But the, the answer the docetist said was this. Well, look, of course God can't be tempted and God can't be tired and God can't be thirsty. That would compromise God if he was. And so the best solution is simply to say this. Jesus was 100% God, but he actually wasn't really a human being. He was 100% God, and he was 0% human. And you go, hang on, hang on, Mr. Docetist. I've got a question for you. If he was 0% human, then what were people looking at when Jesus was walking around saying, I'm the bread of life, and I'm the door, and I'm the good shepherd? Oh, that's very, very easy. People, when they saw Jesus saying those kind of things, people were seeing a ghost, an apparition. So it's not a real human being. They're seeing an optical illusion. Jesus, he was 100% God, but he was 0% man. And that's why they're called docetists, because the Greek word, docesis, docesis, it actually means apparition or phantom. Okay? When you look at Jesus, you see that he's a phantom. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is actually that the book of 1 John, one, one John and 2 John actually deals with docetists. 2 John 7 says this, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver. Not only that, and the Antichrist. Okay? So the early Christians were not convinced by the solution of Docetian because their Bible actually addressed it. 1 John says this, this is how you recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. But every spirit that does not 
is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. So it's very difficult for to hold to docetism if you are one who wanted to hold to the truth of the apostolic writings of the New Testament. Because whoever Jesus was, he had to be 100% human, come in the flesh. So that was docetism. Now, there was the equal and opposite error. Uh, this was the error of what we call adoptionism. And it was this. It was just a little smarter. It said, okay, we recognise that Jesus got hungry and tired and thirsty. What we're proposing, actually, is that Jesus was 100% human, but he actually wasn't divine. He was God-like, but he actually wasn't God. I mean, think about it. Just read your Bible, for goodness sake. Didn't Jesus say, the Father is greater than I? Oh, yeah, yeah. And read those other parts of the Bible where it says, Jesus is the only born of God. I mean, if you're born, you must have a beginning. So, of course, Jesus can't be fully divine. So he's 100% man, 0% God. Why are they called adoptionists? Because they said this. They said, what is so special about Jesus is that he lived such a good life that God said, well done, I'm going to adopt you as my dear son. And when did that happen? That happened at Jesus' baptism. Think about it. What happened at Jesus' baptism? God said this. This is my son, i.e. I'm adopting him. With him I'm well pleased, i.e. he lived a really, really good life. So God the Father calls him God the Son and he's divine-like and he's a great inspiration to us because he's a wonderful example. But the early Christians saw a massive problem with this. Because the Bible so clearly tells us that Jesus is 100% God. Colossians 2.7, for example, puts it so clearly. It says this, All, not part, all of the fullness, not all of the partness or lessness, all of the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Christ. How do you argue with that? Romans 9.5 says that Jesus, the Son, is God over all who is to be praised. When Thomas had Jesus appear to him and show him his hands and his side, what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Not only that, what Jesus did showed himself to be God. He walked around forgiving people sins. How can you forgive sins if you're not God? You have to be God to be able to forgive sins. And of course, the early Christians saw that when Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, that's not a statement about uh, status. When he says, the Father is greater than I, that's a statement about location. The Father is in heaven, he's greater than I, and that's why I'm going to be where he is, because he's in a greater place. The Bible was absolutely clear. Jesus was divine. Well, there was one last attempt 
uh, trying to sort out these issues with Jesus. And this is what we call Arianism. Arianism said this, look, Jesus is he's not quite God. Okay, he's a little bit less than God, but he's much greater than humans. In other words, Jesus is a great creature, a little bit less than God, but so much so that you can probably still call him God and divine, but he's much better than human beings, much greater than human beings. He is a great creature. Well, the church battled Arianism for a long time, for 80, 90 years, uh, particularly in the 4th century. And it became very clear that Jesus couldn't just be a great creature because if he was going to save humans, he had to be human. But if he was going to be the salvation of all humans, he had to be divine. And one of the great early church fathers said, what Jesus did not assume, he could not redeem. That is, if he didn't assume 100% of humanity, then he couldn't redeem humans. So Jesus had to be fully human. He couldn't just be some great creature because it was humans that sinned. But he had to be divine to pay the punishment, to die the death of every human being. So here's the question. How could Jesus be hungry and thirsty and tired and yet still be divine. Answer, can you remember the two perspectives we talked about when it came to the Trinity? Because the answer lies in these. Remember the who? Can you remember what the who was about? And can you remember there was a, a what, what the what was about? The who was what? Persons, that's right. Capacity to relate. What about the what? Substance, which is the capacity to... Capacity to do. Now remember, God is one substance, one what, but three persons, three who's. Now, let's stand back and let's think about Jesus. Jesus is how many who's? One who. Jesus didn't walk around saying, we are the bread of life and we are the door and we are the good shepherd. He just said, I am. Okay? So he's one who, isn't he? He must be one person. But this one person could do what, he had the capacity to do what? He had the capacity to do human things, didn't he? Eat and drink and walk. But he also had the capacity to do divine things. He didn't just walk, he walked on water. He could tell all about Nathaniel before it even met Nathaniel. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. He could forgive sins. Jesus could do human things. Jesus could do divine things. He's got two capacities to do, doesn't he? He's got a human capacity to do. He's got a divine capacity to do. He must be two substances or two natures. He is one person... But he's a person that can do human things and can do divine things. In other words, Jesus is a 100% human, 100% divine when it comes to capacity to do. And he is one person. Now, 
Let's stand back. Well, how is it then? If Jesus was fully divine, how could Jesus get hungry? Well, think about it. Jesus can do human things and he can do divine things. Well, if he can do human things, then he can get hungry. But he's still got a divine nature. How is it that Jesus could be tempted? Well, think about it. Jesus has got a divine nature, which can't get tempted, but he's got a human nature, which can get tempted. Can get tempted. And through his one person, he can be tempted. See, think about it. Jesus can do divine things, human things. He can draw from either nature anytime he wants in his one person. Now, the problem with something like docetism is it can only conceive of Jesus as 100% divine and it has no capacity to think about how the divine can enter into human suffering. And so docetic theology today is found in the health and wealth prosperity gospel that you must always be healed and all because it can't handle human suffering. It doesn't know, it doesn't understand how God can actually be united to a human nature and come into this world and suffer on a cross in a way that we could never understand. On the other hand, adoptionist theology has got a place for human suffering, but it's got no role for how God's power can enter into creation and unite with the human. And so it becomes a works righteousness kind of theology. It is one that seems to think we can't change, we're just stuck where we are, we have to wait till heaven before there can be substantial change in the Christian life. The wonderful thing about the proper orthodox doctrine of Christ is that God can enter into the suffering of the world and he can transform it as well. And we see that fundamentally in Jesus' death for Jesus will suffer more than any one of us but we also see that creation can be transformed through the resurrection and that there can be substantial change, and that there will be substantial change. Praise God. There's the mystery of the Incarnation. We can't fully understand it, but we can shed some light on it. Amen. Questions? Any, any questions? Any words of testimony or prophecies or liturgical dances? Anyone like to do Nick. <laughs> Liturgical dance? What, what, what would you like to do? No, no, no. Uh, I ask a question about creation. Mm. Uh, so, uh, in creation we learn that God created from nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we realise that that this is this this doctrine of creation is similar to Judaism yes. and Islam. Yes. In Greek, Benjamin is a Yep. Yep. Uh, 
Yeah, great question. Uh, Islam and Judaism share the same doctrine of creation. So how should we address the doctrine of creation with uh, Islam and Judaism? Well, I think with Judaism, we do exactly what Paul did. When Paul preached to Jews, he just assumed creation because they had the same doctrine of creation. And that meant that they then would have a similar doctrine of sin, similar doctrine of humanity, all that kind of stuff. So he focused on where the difference really was. And the difference lay in who Jesus was. That Jesus was the expected Messiah, so that's where he focused all his energies. He didn't need to convince them of creation ex nihilo. Now, I would say with Islam it's probably the same, uh, because they have a doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Um, however, uh, their doctrine of God is a little bit different to the Christian doctrine of God, because they, their God is impersonal who can't enter into creation in the way that a Christian uh, understanding of God can. Okay, So God is so other that you can't kind of directly communicate. Okay, uh, Ours is completely different to that. Uh, we, we worship a God who is actually a father to us. Uh, and so that's kind of the area you, you want to focus on, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, so, with Christ, uh, we're seeing him as one person, uh, as two substances, and having the human and divine nature. Uh, is he still like that now? Yes, okay, good question. Uh, yes. Question. So, yes, Je- Jesus rose again from the dead. Uh, his resurrected body, his resurrected human nature, uh, is exactly the same but of a different kind now. Okay, or I should say different quality. So it's now resurrected, but it is still 100% human. Uh, and he keeps that human nature for all eternity. Okay, uh, Which is absolutely remarkable when you think about the infinite God condescending okay, to take on a human nature and then to keep that human nature for all eternity because it's that human nature in Christ that will sustain us for all eternity. And it means actually that we can have uh, the clearest possible revelation of who God is because that can only happen through a human nature made in the image of God. Because we can't see God directly, can we? He's infinite. The closest we can actually see who God is from our limited perspective is through the incarnation, through God becoming human and revealing himself through a human nature that's been made in the image of God. And so that's why he's got to keep it for all eternity as well. Remarkable. Magnificent. Okay, we're going to head off for lunch. Uh, okay, we will have time for a discussion after lunch. Okay, so a good thing at church camp is really just getting together, people having a chance to talk and share, ask questions. So we will have that, but we will break for lunch first. Okay, so 1.30, we come back, we have discussion, and then we have games. All right, you may go. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.